Episode 9, 5 Conceptual Models, Part 2. So here are the five conceptual models all together. In the first model of a world, the myth is focused on a concept of God understood to refer to a singular existing individual, which the author sometimes abbreviates as SEI, a model of divine singularity. In its typically anthropomorphic forms, God appears in human-like manner as personal, the source of benefits received by human beings, a being at times even devoted to human welfare and therefore treated as an object of human interaction, such as in prayer, sacrifice, ritual worship. As a transcendent person, God's divine power is a primary locus for establishing human self-identity. The God-human relationship is often a fraught one, manifested as a contest of wills, God is the ultimate authoritative basis for permitting or demanding certain types of behavior. This is what counts as religious obligation, which means God's demands and divine commands compete not just with willful human behavior, but also may compete with humanity's own systems of morality. With respect to its singularity, the model includes abstract ideas of God as a metaphysical principle as well as highly anthropomorphized depictions. It is here that philosophical theologies arise, accounts of the divine nature and its relation to human nature, including limits to the human capability of understanding the nature and reality of God. Regarding the set of standard attributes applied to God, these may be based on some sense of personal encounter, but are also derived a priori from the necessary existence of an absolutely perfect being constituting ultimate reality. In a manner similar to the reasoning of the ontological argument, from the conceptual necessity of a perfect being, based on establishing that the concept is not self-contradictory, there then follows a string of assertions such as, God is the greatest possible being. God exists by virtue of his own nature. God is creator, the cause of all that exists, that on which everything is dependent. God is perfectly good, but perfectly free. God possesses perfect knowledge, atemporally or across all time. God enjoys absolute and limitless power. God both transcends finite reality, yet is present in it, and so forth. A sense of competition among, and even within, sets of these attributes should not go unnoticed. One major problem faced by this model 
is the considerable gap between highly personalized concept of God who acts in human history or who in various forms has encounters with individuals as described in scripture and the concept of God as an abstract philosophical principle. In exactly what sense, for example, is a transcendent God personal? In attempts to bridge this gap, theologians may argue that a personal God is not a person in the sense that we temporal beings are persons. We are contingent beings. God is a necessary being who exists sui generis. At the same time, if personal applied to divine existence is understood as belonging to an actively conscious being with knowledge and will, in that more abstract sense, God still is a person. While it has been argued that as early as 4,000 years ago, the earliest monotheistic faith arose out of the ancient Persian religion that became Zoroastrianism, clearer evidence emerges from Egypt in the 14th century BCE, 1353 to 1336, with an imposed monotheism during the reign of Akhenaten, who rather systematically degraded Amun and the other deities of the Egyptian pantheon to focus worship solely on Aten, a sun disk deity. More permanent establishment of a monotheistic faith is found in the 6th and 5th centuries BCE, Iron Age II, during the Babylonian captivity of the kingdom of Judah, when certain groups among exiled Jews developed pre-existing ideas, possibly from as early as the 8th century BCE. The culture that was Israelite developed from within the Canaanite people. The Israelites, therefore, were not only familiar with, but were themselves religiously connected to the Canaanite deities of El, Asherah, Baal, and the rest. So how did Yahweh then rise to become the singular sole God of the Israelites? Perhaps in stages, initially with worship reserved for one God among an accepted reality of other gods, but eventually in post-exilic Judaism in the exclusive monotheism that would come to characterize Western faith. It has been argued, not without challenge, that a precursor to what became the singular Yahweh of Israel arose from a god of metallurgy worshipped by Canaanite nomadic copper miners in southern Israel. The imagery of metallurgy seems preserved in Psalm 18, verse 8, describing God as a furnace. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it or in a war song in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 9b, Oracle of Yahweh, whose oven is in Jerusalem. On the other hand, the author thinks that with archaeological evidence suggesting the Israelites emerged internally in the highlands of Canaan, Yahweh may have come to play the role of judge or national overseer of the Israelites within the Canaanite pantheon that included El and Asherah and Baal. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8 speaks of the Most High El giving nations their inheritance 
including that of Yahweh's portion for the children of Israel. Perhaps this was part of a phase of the convergence of attributes of Canaanite deities amongst themselves as general qualities of El, or in which Baal's identification as a storm god was assimilated into Yahweh. The author's suggestion is that the role of national overseer may have been a transition point from junior partner, as it were, to senior member of the divine firm. At some point, either Yahweh as overseer was transformed into a national divine warrior, the storm god described in Deuteronomy 33, verse 26, there is none like the God of Israel who rides the heaven to your help, who is also a God of conquest. He drove out the enemy before you and said, destroy, so Israel shall dwell in safety. Or Yahweh was imported as a divine warrior from Edom and Midian in the southeast and assimilated into the highland pantheon. In the transition from earlier thought of Yahweh as only one among many gods, Yahweh in the end came to be merged with El, whose name then referred quite generically to God. In the period from the 8th century BCE through the Babylonian exile, there was a struggle between those who believed Yahweh alone should be worshipped and those who worshiped him within the larger Canaanite pantheon. But the features of what became Israelite religion came to differentiate themselves from various Canaanite cultic practices. And this included ending child sacrifice and the worship of geophysical objects such as the sun and the moon. Considering a biblical standpoint, it was during and immediately following the exile that one could say there arose a true theology of Israel's election, a unique covenant with Yahweh and subsequent divine law. Indeed, it is reasonable to understand biblical monotheism was given its impetus as a deliberately constructed phenomenon by nationalist groups who were editing Hebrew scripture during the exile as a response to the trauma of the conquest. This constructed jealously monotheistic theology under a single national God, only one God, no other gods, was then zealously enforced in the Israelite homeland during the early period of Persian rule. From 538 BCE, when Cyrus the Great, Persian conqueror of Babylon, gave Jews permission to return to Palestine. Like any concept, as human culture evolves, the concept of God as a singular existing individual itself undergoes change. These changes are based on developments and perceptions of the human relationship to God interpreted through social and cultural constraints. Changes most often revolve around the axis of God's relation to the world, the nature of God's transcendence versus his imminence or the degree to which it makes sense to speak of God as something impersonal versus personal. This monotheistic conceptual model of God as singularity dominates the major Western religions of ancient Israel and Judaism, Christianity, Islam, 
and also has analogs in other non-Western religious traditions such as Tangrism and with considerable qualification, even the Hindu tradition. Many indigenous American tribal peoples may have venerated an or father creator spirit in nature, but it is difficult to separate an accurate picture of this concept from accounts that are given in post-European contact with the Indians. For example, Roger Williams' A Key into the Language of America, which he published in 1643, combined an Indian language phrase book with observations about Indian life and culture, covering everything from salutations to death and burial. He saw the Indians' recognition of a superior creator power as a force that rewarded those who were good with plentiful corn and other crops. At the same time, one cannot simply equate this superior power with the singular god of Western theology. In a second world model, the myth of some general idea of God designates not a singular existing individual, but a multiplicity. The multiplicity is often formed as a collective, a pantheon of deities who interact with one another and with the world. P-A-N is the code the author sometimes uses. This model may represent the historically earliest way of thinking about God as multiple divine beings who broadly reflect humanity's attempt to understand its relation to the cosmos. Attention is directed not to a single source or creator, but to an entire collection of entities who often represent aspect of a world perceived as fragmented. Creation occurs through generations of gods, and relationships among divine beings are often as fragmented as the perceived world. Now, certain divine beings may play the role of creator, or maintainer of a kind of order or harmony within the cosmos. So in a roughly organized collective of deities embodied in a divine pantheon, one powerful deity may reign supreme for a period of time. This effectively localizes human allegiance to that one entity for the moment. More frequently, however, there occurs within the pantheon continuous internecine warfare or competition among divine beings. In such cases, the human relationship to God may be diffused to being acceptance of the power of the divine pantheon as a whole. Several diminutive versions of God as collective can be found. One is God seen as a duo, that is a singular existing individual who has or is associated with a consort, as even Yahweh, God of Israel, may have been. One inherently competitive duo is the functionally dual divine powers of Zoroastrian religion, Ahura Mazda and Araman, representing the powers of good and evil eternally at war. Another variant of duo is found in indigenous American Indian and other creation myths involving twins or siblings. The pair may be competitive and fight one another, 
or their dominant traits may also be complementary, for example, aggressive and compassionate, and thereby serve as a cultural model of balance. A third diminutive version of God as a collective is the idea of a holy family, which uses the human model of father, mother, son, and daughter. A family may explain possible divine interaction with human history. For example, in the Egyptian holy triad, Horus, son of Osiris and Isis, is incarnate in each earthly historical king. El and consort Ashra, son Baal and sister Anat in some Ugarit texts. Hardly a nuclear family with Ashra, mother of some 70 sons. Or with growing veneration of Mary, beginning in fourth century Hyperdulia Marian feasts and the declaration as dogma of Mary as Theotokos, mother of God by the Council of Ephesus 431, a nuclear holy family. In claiming God enters history by becoming incarnate as a living human, theologians may wind up with a multiple entity capable of acting as three coordinated persons in three modes of being, the more abstract Christian trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for example, or perhaps the Hindu Trimurti of Brahma, Creator, Vishnu, Preserver, Shiva, Destroyer, as earthly aspects of a single ultimate reality. We previously spoke of historically early forms of religious expression whose artifacts possibly represented concepts of God as a collection of entities. The oldest known zoomorphic sculpture, the Orignacian Lewinmensch figurine from around 38,000 BCE may represent a deity. Clay figurines found at human constructed sites of worship, Gobekli Tepe, Katahoyuk in Anatolia from around 9,000 to 6,000 BCE also may be images of transhuman entities. With the emergence of Sumerian cuneiform around 3,000 BCE, the earliest records of collected beliefs and practices clearly acknowledge the reality of multiple divine and quasi-divine beings. Written evidence of a multiplicity of deities representing divine reality in Egypt dates from the early dynastic period, also from around 3100 BCE. This grew out of artwork depicting a variety of animal and human-like figures from the preceding pre-dynastic period. So Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Canaanite civilizations all recognized a multiplicity of deities. Ancient Egyptian deities could represent abstract concepts as well as natural and cultural phenomena and appeared in every aspect of life. Atum, the name for pre-existence, whose meaning is both nothingness and completeness or being everything in its state of not yet being, undergoes a metamorphosis of self-fertilization or emanation and produces an initial divine couple, Shu, symbolizing air, and Tefnut, moisture, who in turn produce Geb, earth, and nut, sky. 
The primordial cosmogony is associated with Heliopolis, the original mound receiving the Ka, or embrace, in which the power of Atum was realized. This myth is not an act of creation by a willful agent, but something closer to the spontaneous coming into being of the cosmos. The Egyptian verb transcribed as HPR for come into being or exist in some form. It's written with the image of a scarab beetle is a sui generis property of Atum. Atum, in a sense, forms itself into a cosmos and the twin terms Atum, designating unformed form, and Kepher, the changed or formed form, are logically connected aspects of the same primordial state, perhaps akin to the quasi-philosophical concept of given an infinite plenitude of time, formed existence occurs. Among 1,500 other more easily depicted deities are the falcon-headed sun disk Ra, first mentioned in the pyramid texts around 2400 BCE. Amun, patron of Thebes, Osiris and Isis, who come to rule the underworld. Multi-rolled Hathor, represented as a maternal cow, or a woman head-dressed with cow horns, or a lioness, or even a sycamore tree. Lunar Thoth, whose ibis head associated him with wisdom and science, and with truth and the moral principle of Mott. Mesopotamian deities tended to be patron city gods. Sumerian deities included An, Enlil, Enki, and four others who issued decrees, as well as upwards of 2,000 other beings, including kings, able to enter a pantheon and further offspring of An, individual cult beings with extraordinary powers, the Anunnaki, whose mere garment, or melam, produced a tingling of the flesh in the beholder. Canaanite deities included El, Baal, Anat, the context out of which worship of the singular God of Israel, Yahweh, eventually arose. Most versions of polytheistic pantheons with a multitude of deities provide belief and ritual connections with all aspects of life. That is, they create a world structure of multiple deities connected to people of every social and economic strata, allowing them to relate to a god particularly suited to their circumstance. Divine collectives are also highly malleable, with evolving hierarchies and histories. As a result, different deities exercise different kinds of control or influence over humans and this can change from one historical period to another. Finally, human earthly ancestors, the Egun of Afro-Cuban Regla de Ocha from traditional Yoruba-speaking West African religion, for example. If not gods themselves, ancestor spirits may interact with the pantheon of deities as intermediaries between families and the gods. A third conceptual world model is perhaps hardest to capture. Most examples remain strictly historical, 
In this model, God is locality, envisioned as sacred space or the governing power occupying that space. Therefore, the identity of God can be expressed in several forms as the space of a physical geologic object itself, such as a mountain, or as a human constructed monument on that mountain or as an abstraction of sacred power in a state having control over a city or geopolitical region. STA is the code the author very occasionally uses. It is necessary to make some additional qualifications. By this model, we are not primarily thinking about a physical space that is identified as the distant abode of the gods, such as was Mount Olympus or Mount Othries of the Titans, or Mount Taranaki in New Zealand, or Mount Kalish in Quebec, or Mount Meru, the mythological center of the cosmos identified with the Pamirs north of the Hindu Kush, or Uluru in Australia, although these are not excluded from it. And it is only one possible derivative of this model that is classic theocracy where a deity identified as the supreme ruling authority confers divine power to a human intermediary, king or ruler, who then manages the day-to-day -day affairs of the state. The term theocracy was used by Flavius Josephus to refer to Moses having directly received the rule of law from God. It preserves the sense in which God and state have essentially merged not in the figure of Moses himself as ruler, but in the sense that the state has become, under God's law, the functional embodiment of God as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This distinguishes the model from instances of an entirely secular ruler and state that happen to have a state religion. Somewhat closer to what is meant by this model are instances of God as direct ruler of the state, expressed in the imperial cult of the pharaoh of Egypt, worshipped as the direct offspring of the sun god, Ra, or the veneration of the emperor of Japan as offspring of the Shinto sun goddess Amaterasu. The closest example of what this conceptual model intends to represent is understanding the Mesoamerican religions creating great sacred mountain monuments as a way to directly and physically link human life and a cosmos populated by divine beings who have authority over every aspect of human life. Living in the sacred city of Teotihuacan, as known to the Aztecs 500 years after its collapse around 500 CE, for example, and participating in or even being the object of human sacrifice was living directly within the divine realm. The city's name itself means the place where one becomes deified. Its monumental architecture was integrated with existing geography and at the same time extended the natural geography, presenting a gigantic image of the cosmos with its beginnings as a natural cave that served as portal to both the powers of the underworld and the culture's ancestral origins, the city rose toward towering stepped pyramid-like structures dedicated to celestial forces. But these structures also incorporated 
ordinary living spaces, ceremonial courtyards and residential areas, all of which were laid out around a four-region image of the cosmos. Similar themes of the divine architecture of the state can be found in remains of the ceremonial centers of earlier Olmec culture, 1400 to 400 BCE. The re-engineered landscape of San Lorenzo that was destroyed around 900 BCE, or the island pyramid of Laventa, which stood at the center of the settlement. The fourth model straddles two opposing worldviews, scientific and religious, that, ironically at times, make almost identical denials of God's existence and the ability to intelligibly articulate anything about God's nature. At its core, it perhaps might be best exemplified by Wittgenstein's concluding remark in Proposition 7 at the end of the Tractatus. Woven man nixprechen kann, darüber muss man schweigen. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. NUL is the code the author uses here. This model could be denoted by the tension between God's fundamental inconceivability and enough residual conceivability to be a shared recognition, a model of in slash conceivability. Of course, the bulk of candidates questioning the conceivability of God simply wish to reject the intelligibility of the concept itself altogether. Many are those whose life experiences just do not allow that the concept of God is either relevant or interesting. Regarding relevance, many scientists find raising questions about the existence or nature of God altogether irrelevant to both their work and personal conduct. Regarding interest, it has been claimed that cultures exist with no interest in any such concept, who have not developed anything like a concept of God, or who were not at all receptive to the idea from various missionary attempts. For example, people of the Amazonian hunter-gatherer culture referred to by a Brazilian term as the Paraha, they self-identify in their own language as Hiatahi, or the straight ones, compared to others whose language is crooked. This is a people who, in the view of linguistic anthropologist Daniel Everett, appear to be without a discoverable creation myth about nature's origins or their own. They also appear not to experience depression or other forms of angst and freely give caring attention to the elderly and those with handicaps based on some generally pervasive idea of reciprocity. There also is no social hierarchy. The Paraha view of the universe is reflected in their language. The word for ground, bigi, used in the expression, the ground is wet, yields the phrase bigi hokohi. But the sky is also called bigi, the same word, and cloudy sky is bigi hokohi, just like wet ground. 
The Paraha biosphere is bounded by sky and the ground, both barriers, so both are called bigi. They appear to acknowledge physical location for invisible animals, for example, jaguars above the clouds, or for trees, but no complex supernatural entities, and they hold no concept of a supreme spirit or god. Their kinship system simply identifies generation before and their own generation without gender distinction. There are also no words for colors themselves, something only looks like some other object. Now for others, the concept of God, a singular God, is rejected on the basis of issues of theodicy, failure of attempts to defend divine justice by reconciling the attributes of perfect beneficence and divine omnipotence given the existence of natural or destructive evil and moral evil. Here there are essentially two paths to the rejection of God that leads to atheism. The more radical form, prompted by Hume, comes to the conclusion that the presence of evil in the world, whether human sin or from natural events, ultimately renders the concept of a divine reality to which one attributes both power and absolute benevolence incoherent. A second form that leads to rejection of the idea of God is closer to what humans actually experience. This is the form expressed by Dr. Ryu in Camus' novel La Peste, The Plague, 1947, a view which allows that while the concept of God may be intelligible, it finds the idea of God morally repugnant and unacceptable. Ryu cannot accept a God who allows innocent children to die. Formulations of the problem of theodicy arise as early as ancient Mesopotamia, where the chaotic, disruptive nature of the world was interpreted as a riddle. It appears in Lucretius' De Rerum Natura, but the term theodicy itself was employed in Leibniz's 1710 Essay de la Theodicy sur la bonté de Dieu, la liberté de l'homme et l'origine du mal, and discussion with skeptic Pierre Bale about divine governance of the world in relation to the nature of humankind. From an utterly contrasting world are the mystics and theological contemplatives who virtually identify God's nature with unutterable mystery itself, as did the author of the 14th century Cloud of Unknowing, who says we cannot know what God is, only what God is not. This via negativa draws on a mystical tradition that includes Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite and Neoplatonic philosophers Plotinus, Porphyry, Iamblichus, Proclus, God is beyond the capacity of any mental conception. Plato's theory of immutable form set the stage for this apophatic or negative theology. Standing in opposition to the limitations of objects of human sense perception, which are likened to shadows seen by prisoners on the walls of a cave, knowledge of the forms is unavailable to the human mind. The concept of God is retained in some sense, not as a possible object of knowledge, 
but as being with which one can be mystically united. This tradition continued to inform a recent theologian like Paul Tillich in asserting God does not exist. God is being itself. From the standpoint of the concept of God as ultimate mystery, yet perfect and infinite, while humans remain imperfect and finite, it is hard, if not impossible, for humans to be in a position to grasp the true nature of God. Indeed, if one emphasizes the incomprehensibility of God, it looks like nothing useful can be said about God, which led atheist philosopher David Hume to say that people who stressed the mystical nature of religious belief weren't very far from being atheists themselves without knowing it. On the other hand, the unknown and inconceivable properties of God could simply be the unknown and inconceivable properties of the physical universe. Those could be properties whose effects are known, such as the evil counterpart to gravity, the excess negative gravity that pushes galaxies apart at an accelerating rate, but whose nature itself remains unknown. The dark energy that makes up roughly 68% of the universe. These are properties that at least for the moment, remain unknowable, but they are not meaningless or trivial. But if theologians make unknowability and inconceivability themselves the meaning of the concept of God, that at bottom is artificial confidence, one not replaced by holding out the possibility for some of mystical union with God because it makes metaphysical analysis of the concept of the world beside the point in the lives of those who remain open to the possibility that the cosmos manifests an underlying ground of meaning, a deeper agent of causation, a meaning which for some could even be associated with divine reality, a God that could be real in the scientific universe, which leads to the fifth model. This fifth world model also involves a somewhat divided understanding of the concept of God although not in so radical a way as the null concept. This model, whose code is NAT, begins with an identification of God with nature in some form or other. That is the base concept and might be thought best expressed in Spinoza's phrase, Deus Sivi Natura, against what he saw as a tendency to give God anthropomorphic characteristics in his theologico-political treatise, Spinoza wants to say the word God means the same as the word nature. That is, in terms of causation, whether one attributes things as happening according to the laws of nature or ordered by command of God, one is saying the same thing. Nature, however, is not here thought of as material, but rather as a metaphysical substance. The equivalence God or nature is repeated in the ethics some four times, 
the concept referring to the universe as an infinite, eternal, and necessarily existing system as a whole. Everything that exists, exists within the universe. Everything that exists is part of nature. Much of Spinoza's view turned on his faith in the fundamental regularity of nature, its laws always the same and everywhere one and the same in efficacy and power of action. Nature's laws whereby all things come to pass and change from form to form therefore involve the same method of understanding. So the passions, human emotions such as hatred and envy follow from this same necessity and efficacy of nature. Humans are not different in kind from the rest of the natural world. God's agency, likewise, is consistent with necessity in nature as the properties of, say, a triangle necessitate that its three interior angles are the equivalent of two right angles. God's relation to the universe was not in any case that of some external creator who just happened to or who capriciously created a world out of nothing. Instead, this is a concept of world that establishes an entire system of reality in which God and humankind are already in a primordial closeness. A world system, one would think, open to human investigation of the laws of nature rather than in a relationship seen as a contest of wills, as in the first model of the concept of God as a singular existing individual. It is this primordial union, not a deification of materialism, that lies at the heart of Spinoza's so-called pantheism. It is a model which invites the notion that an eternally existing universe is its own ground of reality. An extension of this conceptual model of God as nature identifies nature as the medium for moral awareness in humankind. At its simplest, it can be a belief that the universe is a locus where meaningful moral activity can take place, that among its other characteristics, nature exhibits balance, reciprocity, if not fairness. One can find it expressed in the ideal of Manitou among Algonquin language-speaking Indians in which nature embodies excellence or moral values that can be found in humans who interact with nature properly. Gratitude to the natural power from which some bounty was received expressed by performing certain rituals after a successful hunt. Removing the heart, left rear foot, tongue of a moose before preparing venison, for example, demonstrating belief that animals must be respected as sources of spiritual power and properly addressed and treated even as they are consumed. One finds its presence in a different form with the Taoist writings of Lao Tzu and the notion of Fu Hui, replacing striving against nature to achieve particular goals with following simple patterns provided by the natural world, creating a path of harmony that uses nature as a model for human behavior. And one finds it in the works of the transcendentalists, such as Emerson, who in his Divinity School Address extols the overpowering beauty of nature and then relates it to the even deeper beauty that appears when human hearts and minds are open to the sentiment of virtue, 
when we are aware of the moral law written on our hearts. So, in their simplest, or perhaps oversimplified form, then, these five conceptual models of religious worlds, in terms of some form of concept of God they may contain, could be expressed as, one, God as singularity, a singular existing individual generally, but not in every case, thought of as creator of the world. Two, God as a multiplicity of divine entities, generally, but not in every case, thought of as members of a collective or divine pantheon. Three, God as locality, a corporate entity identified as some form of divine state, generally, but not in every case, realized in a specific physical manifestation on Earth. Four, God as the tension of conceivability and inconceivability, an entity about which no true conception can be held in the mind, generally, but not in every case, capable of being in some form of mystical union with the believer. And five, God as strongly identified with or coextensive with phenomena of nature, nature that generally, but not in every case, is perceived as a coherent system that can be a source of moral obligation and the locus of meaningful action and scientific knowledge. So now, James, I understand that the plan is for each of these conceptual models to be carefully and deeply unraveled, and that for each model, we're especially going to ask two questions. One, in what way does it constitute the umwelt of a primitive perception of reality by which the world can be understood differently from that of other models? What are the characteristics, the family resemblances which differentiate one model from others? And in particular, how do these differences impact the way people live their lives, how they relate to the world and to one another? And two, what are the possibilities of phenomena? In what way do the phenomena of a given worldview solve the deepest existential problems people experience? How does the model provide a meaningful response to life's unanswerable dilemmas to help them understand values they honor? And the hope of this investigation is also to uncover whether or to what extent a world employing the concept of God is capable of being meaningfully shared especially if the concept is continually forced to embody contradictions or paradoxes within it. In the end, does the concept become unusable? In the end, do we become like travelers approaching a city thought to lay in one direction only to find it is in another? Travelers in a world thought familiar, but who then discover they do not know their way about. So does each world, does any world present a consistent myth? And is it a world in which one would want to live as a being whose moral commitments had meaning? Or is the world and the concept of God that maintains the world self-defeating? One other thing, I want to depart from the order in which the manuscript treats these topics. For reasons I hope will be clear when we get into it, I want to start with the concept of multiplicity, 
I think there is some historical justification for doing it this way, but also because it will get us away from the tendency to assume religious worlds somehow naturally evolve into singularity that become a monotheistic theology, if you want to call it that. Folks, we're out of time for this evening. Remember that on Radio XITN, you're connected to the brightest spot on your radio dial. We'll see you all on the next Sunday episode.